Hi listeners, this is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast from the Post and Courier. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, November 4th, just after noon, and Americans are still waiting on the results of the presidential election. But we do know that in South Carolina, Republicans had a strong night. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Gavin McIntyre. We're going to be breaking down the results of the two big races we've been following over the last several weeks on this podcast. South Carolina's Senate race, and the contest in the 1st Congressional District. We're also going to be taking a closer look at votes cast for president in South Carolina, which was among the first states called for President Trump on election night. But first, we're going to take a look at what happened in the low country in the race between Democratic incumbent Joe Cunningham and his Republican challenger, Nancy Mace. Very exciting moment for us to make history here in South Carolina. At about 2 a.m. this morning, the Associated Press called the race um, based on the numbers that were coming in and and what's left to to count. And I'm deeply humbled uh, that the voters of South Carolina's first congressional district had the faith, the trust, and the confidence in us uh, and in me to to lead the low country from here forward. My job starts today. Cunningham was favored to win this race. But it was expected to be close, and it was. For much of the night, it was too close to call. But at around 2 a.m. on election night, the Associated Press made the call that Mace had come out on top. We are talking with reporter Thomas Novelli again, who was on the show recently, to talk about this race to get the next day take on on what happened. So, Tom, is this result a surprise? Uh, Thanks for having me back on the podcast. in short, yes, this is absolutely a surprise. This is something that national experts, national pollsters had weighed in on this race. Uh, and at first labeled it a toss-up a couple months ago and then started to say that it was leading uh, more Democratic probably within the last two months or so. Um, and all signs pointed to a certainly a close victory for Cunningham, but um, a victory for him nonetheless. And that narrative completely shifted uh, starting at around uh, 11 p.m. last night as we saw some vote totals come in. How has Cunningham responded today? Has he conceded at this point? And just for listeners, we are talking right now just after 12.30 p.m. on Wednesday. So, uh, no, Cunningham has, has not conceded this race. Uh, the Associated Press called it around 2 a.m. Um, on, on Wednesday morning. And right now he's still holding on to every vote being counted. And I think to put this in context with with everything that's going on right now, um, there are still about 15,000 votes that are outstanding in this race, in part due to a balloting error that happened in Dorchester County, uh, as well as two precincts in Beaufort County that have not reported their uh, Election Day in-person results. Um, And Cunningham is still holding on to that. Um, Early in the night, around 7 o'clock at his party, he first said, uh, look, you know, I think that this is going to push us over the edge. We still feel like we're in the driver's seat here. We can't call it. But still came off very confident that 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 was not going to affect the race. Um, And it's true. It it really didn't affect the race in the sense that even without those votes, they were able to call it. But for Mace, not for him. Uh, at the end, and she did exceptionally well in the county surrounding Charleston County and, and managed to, to tighten that margin and ultimately push ahead. And you spent last night at Cunningham's uh, election party. What was kind of his mood and the supporters' mood there? 
Uh, first off, everything's different in the time of COVID. I've been to many election night parties, and this one was very strange. Uh, it was at the workshop food court in downtown Charleston, and mostly just close supporters, friends of staff, etc. Um, and it was out on the lawn. But the interesting part about this was uh, Cunningham was barely there. Cunningham showed up uh, a little after 7 o'clock, around 8 o'clock, I think, uh, and just gave some very brief remarks to the press. But, you know, like I mentioned uh, earlier, it was very confident. He came out there saying, I think we're in the driver's seat on this one. I think that we're going to be able to pull ahead. Uh, and also, when it came to those votes in Dorchester County, he said, I feel like we spread our message really well there. Um, but as of this moment right now, uh, Mace is leading in, in Dorchester County pretty significantly. Um, and he'd have to win a pretty good margin of those votes to to come ahead. Um, but overall, he was just trying to stay positive, stay optimistic. But then we haven't seen him since. Uh, he got whisked off to a war room to talk strategy with a lot of his staff. Uh, and then ultimately, the party ended at 11 o'clock. We didn't see him again. And again, just for, for listeners, we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon, and we will be linking all of the, the up-to-date information when we post this tomorrow. It's likely that we will know for sure at that point. Um, but again, the Associated Press called this race for Nancy Mace at uh, 2 a.m. after election night. Uh, pivoting to Nancy Mace, she has uh, accepted the results, right, and is pretty much, um, you know, going with 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 that call and has spoken to supporters that happened this morning and you were there uh where was she and what did she say uh so i spoke with nancy mace uh first off early this morning um when the race was called for the associated press uh she was ecstatic she was very excited um and you know immediately said that she wants to get to work uh she wants to make serving the low country her priority uh, then the public saw her again around 10 a.m. She went back to where she said kind of where it all started. She went back to the Waffle House uh, in Latson, where she was a waitress as a teenager. Uh, and it was a very personal moment for her. She actually got kind of choked up and, and teary during a, a press conference in front of there saying that, you know, I've overcome a lot of adversity in my life, whether it was dropping out of high school and then enrolling at the Citadel only to become the first female graduate from the Corps, Corps of Cadets um, to, you know, now winning this race where she was kind of considered, uh, you know, a little bit of an outsider. Um, so she was very emotional this morning and, and addressed supporters and talked about how she wants to start uniting the low country. She understands that this was a divisive election year um, and she wants to, to get to work and, uh, primarily said that, you know, she wants to, to be a servant leader in any way that she can. And, you know, you mentioned her priorities. Did she list any priorities during uh, this press conference? Uh, it was vague, but she did. Uh, she's clearly very excited to, to get at this. And I found, something I found interesting was she's talking a, a lot of similar talking points that Cunningham did. You can see her message becoming a little bit more bipartisan, maybe a little bit more moderate. So the first thing she said was that uh, if she gets her choice of committees when she becomes a freshman in Congress, uh, it would be uh, to be on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee because she realizes that South Carolina's coastal communities uh, need roads, they need bridges, they need updated roads and bridges, and she wants to be an advocate for that. She talked about South Carolina's high unemployment rates, and she wants to be able to address that at a federal level. Um, and then she also uh, talked about 
Paris Island, actually, something that was a huge sticking point during the campaign between uh, her and Cunningham. And she said that I she wants to save Paris Island. She wasn't specific on that because, uh, as we know, going through that issue, uh, it's very complicated and it's not clear whether it's actually in danger immediately right now or not. But it'll be interesting to see what she specifically means by saving Paris Island. And we talked more about uh, the Paris Island issue in our episode about this race. So if you're interested in that, go back and listen to that episode. Tom, what are the takeaways right now that you're seeing? What have we learned about the first congressional district in South Carolina after last night's results? We have learned that South Carolina's first congressional district is not a monolith in some way, that it is... It truly is diverse, but what we found out was that during a presidential year where people are hyper-partisan, they are more willing to support Republicans completely down the ballot. Speaking with some political experts uh, last night into this morning, uh, what we're seeing is just a lot of energy completely down the ballot, where somebody uh, in a non-presidential year may have been more willing to say, you know, I'm going to support President Trump, um, but... I also like Joe Cunningham's message, and I'll vote for him. So I'll, I'll, I'll check this box as a Democrat instead of a Republican on my ballot. Um, so what we're seeing there is that the stakes seem to be significantly higher for Republicans, and they wanted to go all the way down the ticket to support as many Republicans uh, as possible. And you know, also what we're seeing is that it comes down to fundamentals in, in some way. Uh, speaking with the South Carolina uh, GOP chairman this morning, he mentioned that their ground game, the Republicans' ground game across the state, was significant. Uh, where a lot of Democrats took precautions during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the South Carolina GOP went out and they were knocking doors, and especially knocking doors in areas uh, that were more rural, places that might not have uh, as much of a uh, precaution or hesitation for the coronavirus, uh, so that they're not going to be upset if somebody knocks on their door and asks them, who are you voting for? Let me tell you about Nancy Mace. Um, So we see that the takeaway here is that sometimes it comes down to just your party, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and also who got in front of you and pitched their message the best. And, you know, outside of doing virtual events, the South Carolina GOP made sure that they talked to as many people in person as they could. Thanks so much for covering this race and for Uh, keeping us updated throughout it and for joining us again today. I appreciate it. So right at about 10 p.m. last night, the Associated Press called Republican incumbent Lindsey Graham as the winner in South Carolina's Senate race. He defeated Jamie Harrison, who had raised more money during this election cycle than any U.S. Senate candidate in history. Uh, So we're checking in again with Jamie Lovegrove, who, of course, has been following this race. Uh, We've had him on the show a couple times to talk about it. And he was with uh, Lindsey Graham and his and his supporters last night. This race was considered a toss up. But what did those votes end up looking like? What was the margin between these two candidates? It was a landslide. We're still waiting to, to see some votes come in. But as of right now, I'm looking at it, we have a 14 percentage point lead for Lindsey Graham, 56.2% to 42.3% for Jamie Harrison. The big county that's still counting is Richland, which is a a very Democratic uh, county, 
so it may get a little bit closer. But, I mean, if Lindsey Graham is able to hold on to 56%, that is a higher share of the vote than he got in 2014 when his Democratic challenger raised $500,000 for his entire race. Of course, Jamie Harrison this time raised north of $130 million. So it is just uh, a remarkable outcome. And I can certainly say that even Senator Graham's campaign, his staff, his biggest supporters did not expect a blowout of these kind of proportions. Right. And it, it was looking like Senator Graham was going to hold the seat. I know Jamie Harrison, his his rhetoric a few days out was kind of it was a, a win just to get to this point. Right. Um, language kind of hinting that they expected to lose, but but not to this extent. Right. Right. I think, you know, my sense from both candidates as we got into the, the closing stretch of this race the last week or so was that was that Lindsey Graham felt very confident. He felt very relaxed. He thought he would probably win by, he thought four to eight points was uh, what, what their prediction was. And yeah, it did seem that Jamie Harrison was a little bit, he was laying the foundation of sort of the narrative that you would want to shape after losing a race like this, basically saying, you know, we built the state party. We, we have laid uh, a, a new groundwork for Democrats to do well in South Carolina in the future, brought, brought back hope to South Carolina, even if we don't win. That's typically the kind of thing that candidates who think they're probably not going to win start saying. Um, so that would indicate he thought that it was maybe going to go the wrong way. But he definitely obviously did not think he was going to be losing by, by this much. He was hopeful that he was going to have coattails for Democrats down ballot, uh, and instead it looks like Democrats down ballot are also getting just destroyed in, in, in districts all over South Carolina right now. What were you hearing from from Graham and his supporters last night? You were uh, with with him, with, with his supporters uh, on, on election night. What were they saying? They were very excited, of course. You know, they were not surprised by the fact that he won, but again, I think they were quite surprised by just how big the margin of victory was. This was a real message for for him to send uh, and is one that, that could be felt for years to come in South Carolina. You know, it is going to be uh, more difficult now. It, it, you've got to imagine for Democrats to convince folks outside of South Carolina that this state can be in play. You know, if, if $130 million can't do it, you know, it, it would certainly appear that there is no amount of money that can that can flip South Carolina. What are we seeing in terms of the state house and Republican seats? It's looking like Republicans are going to net gain at least one or as many as four state senate seats. The state senate was a chamber that Democrats thought going into tonight they had a chance of significantly narrowing if not getting even up to a tie. They were hoping to gain as many as four seats, have a net gain of four seats, especially down in the low country where, where they were targeting several incumbents and, and an open race down there. And right now, Republicans are holding on to all of their incumbents, um, most of them extremely comfortably. Huge night for Republicans in the state Senate. If they do end up gaining four, they will have a supermajority uh, in the state Senate, which will make it even easier for them to pass some of their most ambitious and, and controversial legislation. It'll also mean that as we head into redistricting next year, uh, once the census gets completed and we have the data from that, 
as lawmakers are redrawing the lines of districts all over South Carolina, both in the state house and for the congressional delegation, Republicans are going to be considerably stronger than they were heading into this election and will have much more leeway to to draw it as they please, um, which could lock in Republican control of the state house for another decade to come. So what's the takeaway for South Carolina Democrats after this election? There's going to be a, a ton of soul searching. It is hard to know. Uh, you know, I, I talked to Jimmy Harrison yesterday morning, you know, as we at, on election day, and, and he was, you know, again, I think there was some laying the groundwork for the possibility that he may may lose. But, but you know, the, the notion from him was that the South Carolina Democratic Party was going to be stronger because of this this race. And, you know, that was that was a key takeaway for them heading into election night. But that just does not appear to be the case right now. Uh, South Carolina Democrats are going to be significantly weakened after this race. And, and what he also said was that he felt that he'd run a flawless campaign. Um, he said it was one of the best campaigns he's ever been a part of. He's been in politics for a long time. He's worked on a lot of campaigns. You know, it's I'm sure there will be some Democrats and some Republicans who point to certain things along the way that he could have done differently. But I, it was a very well-run campaign. They raised, obviously, a humongous amount of money. They spent it all. They were on TV early. Uh, they gave a ton to the state party. They did all the things that, as a Democrat, you would want to see someone do at the statewide level, something they have been yearning for for years. And they've always said, if we could just get a Democrat with these kind of resources and running this kind of efficient campaign, things could go differently. And instead, you know, we're, we're seeing one of the biggest statewide blowouts we've seen in years. How you recover from that, uh, you know, how you, what lessons you take away from that in a positive way for Democrats I don't know, um, because, you know, if you can't say that we if you can't point to things that went wrong, how do you fix them? And and if there are no things that went wrong, then then it becomes even clearer that the headwinds Democrats face in South Carolina just are insurmountable by campaigns. Look, campaigns generally at the end of the day move things at the margins to begin with. The vast majority of voters, both in South Carolina and all over the country, are very locked in one side or the other. They are, there's a ton of straight ticket voters. There's nothing candidates can say to change their minds. So you're focusing on a very small contingent of, of swing voters, of persuadable folks. You know, so you're never going to be able to overcome you know, 20 point deficits, 15 point deficits in, in races because that there just are not that many persuadable voters in the middle. So, you know, all that's to say, it's going to be, it's going to be a tough few months for Democrats as they figure out the path forward. And uh, Republicans have a real opportunity, again, with redistricting, you know, some of their races in the future to potentially lock in um, even stronger control of South Carolina for, for a long time. This has been a, a long road covering this Senate election. When did you start reporting on it? How long exactly has this been? I first wrote a story about this race in, in early February 2019. And I wrote then that this race had the potential to become the, the Beto O'Rourke-Ted Cruz race of this cycle. 
And for the most part, I feel like that held up pretty well um, in a lot of ways. You know, there were not many people paying attention to this race at the beginning of it, which was the same in Texas, uh, where I actually came from. I, you know, covered the very beginning of that Texas Senate race. But we knew that, that Lindsey Graham was a very polarizing figure on a national level. He was loathed by Democrats for his transformation from, from Trump critic to Trump ally, but he was increasingly beloved by Republicans for that exact same reason, which is not dissimilar to to Ted Cruz uh, in 2018. And, and so we knew that no matter who ran against him, there was probably going to be a lot of Democratic interest in unseating him the same way there is for someone like Mitch McConnell and for someone like Ted Cruz, you know, these big name Republican figures who Democrats would love to kind of take down. So you know, we knew that there was the potential for that. We knew Jamie Harrison at that point was looking at this and, and Jamie Harrison had the potential to be a, a strong challenger. And I thought then, you know, that, that what we would probably see was exactly what happened basically over the next year and a half, which was it would start out very one-sided the same way Texas did. It would get closer and closer. There would suddenly be a huge surge of momentum for Democrats. They would start raising a ton of money. There would be polls in the last few months of the race that suggested it was really close. And, you know, I certainly, this is South Carolina, suspected that, that Lindsey Graham would, would come out on top in the end. He was always the favorite. But where this, where this analysis ended up being off was that, you know, suspected Lindsey Graham would win by a similar margin to what Ted Cruz did, which was about two and a half, three percent. And instead, he looks to have won by double digits, which I think all of us are going to be uh, trying to figure out for a while to come. Uh, Republicans and Democrats, reporters, everyone. Next up, we're going to hear from Gibbs Knotts, a political science professor at the College of Charleston. He gave us a closer look at Tuesday's results, including ballots cast for president in South Carolina. It's, of course, no surprise that President Trump won South Carolina last night, but wanted to look a little bit closer at those results and, and at the data and see what that tells us. So just to start out, how did President Trump do in different parts of South Carolina? And was that any different from 2016? That's a great question. So uh, the, the the upstate, you know, the area around Greenville, Spartanburg, Aiken County, that's really been traditionally the strongest Republican part of the state. And that held true again uh, in 2020. You know, Republicans always know that their most loyal voters are you know, where Lindsey Graham is from, you know, up in the upstate. Pretty split in the middle part of the state. Here in the low country, it was also fairly split. You know, obviously Charleston County was big for Joe Biden, but Charleston County is not the only county in the low country. And so other counties in the low country, Donald Trump did a lot better. And so, you know, region does matter in South Carolina. The upstate is the most reliably, reliably Republican. The middle part of state and the low country are, are fairly evenly split, depending on whether you're talking about urban areas or, or suburban areas. Right. So let's let's talk about that breakdown. How did the presidential votes differ in terms of rural, urban and, and suburban voters? So area type, you know, rural, urban and suburban, we heard so much of that being discussed at the national level. The, su the suburbs are the new battleground. And that did not really play out in South Carolina. So, you know, urban areas, Biden won as expected. 
58% to 39%, according to the exit polls. Rural areas, Trump won 58 to 41%. That was kind of expected. Suburban areas were, you know, I expected there to be more of a battleground in the suburban areas of South Carolina, according to the exit polls. 59% went for Trump. Trump actually did the best in the South Carolina suburbs of any of the other areas. He did better in the suburbs by one percentage point than he did in rural areas. And so at least in South Carolina, the suburbs weren't the battleground. That doesn't mean there wasn't one particular suburb, like maybe let's take Mount Pleasant. Maybe that was an area where Biden did a little better. But when you sort of add Mount Pleasant, plus the suburbs of Columbia, plus the suburbs of Greenville, plus the suburbs of Spartanburg, it ended up being really strong for Donald Trump. Let's go through some of those other demographic groups. What about among uh, college-educated versus non-college-educated voters in South Carolina? So that's another big narrative uh, nationally. The college-educated voters were going to be breaking Biden. Uh, Non-college-educated voters, particularly non-college-educated whites, were Trump. So in South Carolina, again, we were an outlier. So uh, college graduates, 38% of voters yesterday, the exit polls are estimating were college graduates, 62% not college graduates, and the percentage was exactly the same for Trump. 56% of college graduates voted for Trump, 56% of non-college graduates voted for Trump. And so, whereas that wasn't was a factor nationally, it didn't seem to really matter in South Carolina. It was not a big driver in South Carolina. Now, what about race, though? I know by by race, we see a pretty pronounced divide when we're talking about these two candidates. That's exactly right. So even going back to you know famous political scientist that wrote about Southern politics, B.O. Key, who was a Harvard professor, he talked about race being you know really the, the defining factor in Southern politics. And he was writing in 1949, describing the politics from 1900 to 1950, really. Here we are in 2020, and there's still a lot of divisions based on race. And so 65% of voters, according to exit polls, were white in South Carolina. 74%, three in four, voted for Donald Trump. Only 24% of white voters supported Biden, according to the exit polls. Voters of color, uh, and again, that's predominantly African-American because we are, you know, uh, those are the, you know, the two dominant racial groups in South Carolina, made up 35% of the electorate, a little over a third, and 76% of voters of color supported Joe Biden. Only 21% voted for Donald Trump. The percentage is even lower for African-Americans voting for Donald Trump. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a huge factor in South Carolina. Whites are in the majority at 65% and three in four whites voted for Donald Trump. You know, obviously there are, you know, more things than race that explain this election, but that is a pretty stark difference in support for Biden and Trump when, it, when you look at white voters versus, versus voters of color. And those are pretty uh, similar percentages, kind of I- inverse, right? So it's, if you're a, a white voter, you're you're pretty much as likely to have voted for Donald Trump as if you were a a voter of color, as likely as you would have been to vote for Joe Biden, right? Exactly. And they're, they're really mirror images of each other. It's 74% of white voters voted for Trump, 76% of voters of color voted for Biden, and that's here in South Carolina. So yeah, just, you know, really stark differences, you know, based on the racial makeup of the voter and who they supported for president. 
Tuesday night was definitely a strong night for South Carolina Republicans. Just how conservative is South Carolina right now? That's such a great question. And so, you know, you know, really, when you look at elections, it's these underlying fundamentals. I mean, we like commercials. We like the debate. Certainly I do. I like seeing the, 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 those things get, get hashed out. But, you know, at the end of the day, there are some underlying fundamentals in a congressional district or in a state that drive a lot of politics. And so you asked a great question. How conservative is South Carolina? Fortunately, the exit polls included that. So they interviewed over 1,600 South Carolina voters. And, and I think the exit polls didn't just look at people voting on election day. They tried to be careful and have a mix of people who voted early and voted on election day, and I think even some mail-in votes. And so 47% of people uh, voting in South Carolina during this election are conservative. I mean, that is almost half. And that's just such a difficult hurdle for candidates that are moderate or liberal. I mean, you know, just ask Joe Cunningham or Jamie Harrison. So 47% conservative. 37% moderate and uh, only 15% liberal. You know, the 15% who said they were liberal, Joe Biden won 90% of those. And so the problem is there's just not that many people. Of the conservatives, 47%, Donald Trump won 85% of conservatives. Joe Biden actually won among moderates, 55-43, but there's only, again, 37% moderate. And so you, when you're running in a conservative state, and increasingly, you know, now Republicans are the conservative party. It didn't used to always be that way. Democrats were the conservative party through a lot of, uh, a lot of the 20th century and certainly uh, the very end of the 19th century. But, but this day and age, Republicans are conservative and they just have a big advantage. Now, I like to talk about it sometimes like, you know, I ran track uh, in high school and, and, and I always think about it comparing it to running, you know, it's almost like a Republican candidate, they're running a hundred yard dash and the Republican candidate gets to start at the 20 yard line in South Carolina. And so it doesn't mean that you can't find a really, a really fast runner who can beat a person, but most people, if you give them a 20 yard head start or a 30 yard head start or whatever the metric is, they're going to have a good chance. We started off this episode by talking about the race in the first congressional district. You mentioned Joe Cunningham and uh, very, very early this morning around around 2 a.m. His Republican challenger, Nancy Mace, uh, was named by the Associated Press as the winner. It was very close. Of course, it was very close two years ago uh, when Joe Cunningham won. And in that case, the candidate, Joe Cunningham at the time, who wasn't expected to win, one and um this year he was more favored and, and of course nancy mace emerged as the winner what have we learned about the first congressional district where where is it right now it, it flipped and then it flipped again it's such a great question and so you know i think the first congressional district one thing you know to keep in mind is you know it was when when republicans sat down to design the congressional districts in 2010 based on the census results. And so it might've been 2011 by the time they actually sat down, you know, they wanted to make a district that would help a Republican get elected. And so uh, just as one example, in 2016, Donald Trump won the first by 13 percentage points. And so it's always a district that a Republican's gonna have an advantage. With that said, anybody who studies American politics or studies congressional elections knows that House members, incumbents win at like a 90% rate. And so once you're an incumbent, like Joe Cunningham, you have a really good chance of winning. So it was almost like the fundamentals uh, versus incumbency going head to head in 2020. And in this case, 
it was very close, but it, but underlying fundamentals won out. Another thing, Emily, that I've been thinking about that I'm just trying to sort of, I'm spitballing a little bit and trying to get a better sense of, but I woke up thinking about was, you know, how did Nancy Mace benefit from, you know, having Donald Trump, who's popular in South Carolina atop the ticket, and also having Lindsey Graham, who ended up performing very well. Uh, you know, Joe Cunningham won in, in a midterm election where there wasn't an incumbent Republican president in, a, you know, in South Carolina at the time because there you know, wasn't a presidential election. And so, you know, maybe it's Democrat has a little bit better chance uh, in a non-presidential year, potentially in South Carolina. You know, obviously, Nancy Mace and Katie Arrington we're not the same candidate. And so, you know, perhaps, you know, you know, Nancy Mace, uh, you know, certainly had uh, a little, maybe a little bit more of a, of a, of a, of a national name, name, certainly being the first woman to graduate from the Citadel and probably had some more backing from the national party. But, you know, I think it's a very close election. It was interesting, you know, all the agencies, the professionals who look at that, whether it's roll call or Sabato's crystal ball, you know, in the days before, they all had it lean Democrat. Like I couldn't find anybody who called it even a toss up anymore. And so that was a surprise. I mean, I guess at some level, it shouldn't be that surprising because it's a Republican district, but it was a surprise based on how people thought it would go. What's a takeaway for South Carolina Republicans and what's a takeaway for South Carolina Democrats? South Carolina Republicans should feel great. They, you know, have put a lot into uh, the party. It's always, you know, since the days of Carol Campbell, South Carolina Republicans have, I think, worked to build a strong party in the state. They have a strong get out the vote effort and they should feel really good to get the first congressional district back, to have Lindsey Graham and Donald Trump have such impressive victories. I mean, for South Carolina Democrats, it's definitely, it was a rough election, but the Democrats have to figure out how to, you know, do better in rural areas and they have to figure out how to close that gap in in the suburbs. Other suburbs from around the country, uh, Democrats are more competitive, but here in South Carolina, they haven't been able to consistently win suburban voters. They've got to figure out how to do that. Because of the higher volume of absentee ballots that were cast this year, there was a longer wait for the results. Dorchester County, in particular, had an issue with mail-in ballots on Election Day. We checked in with reporter Avery Wilkes on what happened there. So Avery, what was the problem with these ballots and, you know, how many were exactly affected? The problem with the ballots uh, was that what's called timing marks, which are at the the top and the bottom of uh, of your ballot, they basically tell the, the scanning machine that counts the votes um, where where the ballot starts, where it stops, and where the votes are for the can- scanning machine to look for. Unfortunately for Dorchester County, uh, the third-party vendor, Sun Printing, that printed those ballots um, made a mistake and printed the timing marks one-eighth of an inch too short. So what that means is that on Election Day, when they started to scan those ballots to include them in Dorchester County's count, uh, those mail-in bounty uh, ballots did not count. They would would not work no matter no matter what they did. Uh, so now there are a couple of options um, that were immediately available to fix that. One was to have the uh, the printer come in and try to reprint those timing marks onto the ballots, uh, which would theoretically, you know, if you just print that one eighth of an inch back onto it, you could feed them all of them back through the scanner and count them quickly. 
Um, the state election commission vetoed that because they see uh, ballots that have already been marked by voters as sacrosanct. They do not want uh, anybody printing or adding something to a ballot that voters have already marked on, uh, just because that could lead to some sort of air of impropriety. Um, so that was vetoed. So the only other option now is basically to re-insert uh, or, or, or recast these ballots. So they're, they've got these small teams of four uh, uh, poll workers working for Dorchester County, I guess around the clock until they finish. One of them is going to read the ballot out loud and, and note where, uh, you know, which candidate was voted for in each of these races. And the other person will be standing there at the voting machine and inputting the, the selections. And, and then they will both look at the ballot as it's printed out, just like you would if you were voting in person, make sure that the original ballot and the copy ballot uh, match. And then they will send those on to yet another person or pair of people who will uh, also check behind to make sure that they match. So there, there's a huge emphasis here on uh, on being precise, on making sure that the votes are, are counted correctly, on making sure that the, the voters' intent in casting the ballot is preserved. But it's really time consuming. Um, and, and there are some concerns about how long that's going to take because you're talking about uh, you know, more than 14,260 ballots that they have to redo by hand. Uh, there is a deadline of Friday to certify the results, and I believe they're optimistic that they're going to be able to hit that. But this is still uh, an issue, a controversy that I'm, I'm sure they would have loved to avoid uh, on the day after Election Day. And did this have an impact on getting results on Election Night or, you know, what were, did play a part in any races? It, it has. Uh, on the congressional, statewide, um, you know, state house races, it really didn't make much of a difference. Uh, a number of the candidates in those areas are, are running unopposed or, um, you know, the Republicans were going to win by heavy margins anyway. Uh, and, and these ballots would likely come, come back more Republican since they are uh, from Dorchester County after all. Uh, but for the local school school board uh, races, those are still very much in the air. Those were highly contested races. There are three open seats. Um, I think there were something like 10 candidates. So there are a lot of people who are anxiously waiting to see how how they did uh, or whether their candidate won. And, you know, when you're talking about 14,000 votes, that's that's a big deal in a local school board race. So it could be, you know, another day or two before before we know who's going to be on the uh, Dorchester School District 2 school board. We found out about this problem a, a little bit late in the game on election day. So I think a lot of people are probably wondering, how did it get to this point before we found out that this was an issue? Yeah, I think some of the, the workers were, were working through um, different solutions, but, but certainly it also took uh, the election commission by surprise. Uh, the company they had hired was already pre-approved by the state election commission. It was one of a handful of companies that were approved to uh, to print absentee ballots ahead of this election year, which as Gavin said, um, you know, we were expecting a lot of mail-in voters because of the coronavirus pandemic and because of just heightened turnout in general for this election. So this company was on a pre-approved list. Dorchester County hired them to, um, you know, to print the ballots and to mail the ballots directly to voters. Dorchester County had already um, sampled and, and looked at some of the sample ballots and, and put those through scanners and they worked just fine. So they had no reason to think that the ballots wouldn't work. Um, but of course, uh, since the, the company Sun Printing was hired to mail the ballots directly to voters, um, you know, Dorchester County didn't get a look at those ballots, didn't get to test the actual ballots um, before they were sent to voters. So 
yeah, they were surprised. They were caught off guard, um, you know, when they started scanning these on election day. And, you know, frankly, they were the only one of the nine counties that this printing company has worked for that's had this issue. So it, it seems like it's a bit of an aberration. And, uh, and yeah, it definitely caught them off guard. And is it correct to say that, at least in South Carolina, this was the only major election day issue that we saw with with absentee mail-in ballots? It's the only major issue that I'm aware of. Uh, certainly, I'm sure we could you know, things are things are liable to come out later. Uh, there have been some late reporting of results. Uh, Richland County, uh, which has had a series of election snafus since 2012, uh, has been really late in reporting results. Uh, and of course, there's always issues at the polls. You know, people showing up maskless and being told to wear a mask, things like that. But those are those are sort of more minor concerns, but this is by far the the biggest issue that we've identified to date. Um, the state election commission was telling me earlier that, you know, every major election they have to deal with they have to duplicate a certain number of of uh, votes. Maybe the the absentee vote came in by the mail and it had been damaged uh, by mail, or maybe there was some other issue and and the vote won't scan through a counting machine, but. Um, you know, that's that that's usually in the dozens or maybe the hundreds, even for, you know, a statewide race or a presidential race. But 14,000 in one county, this is absolutely unprecedented. And, uh, yeah, it's going to take a Herculean effort to to fix this. And they they gave themselves a deadline on Friday or that's when they hope to be done. That's that, that is the deadline to, to certify results in, in South Carolina. Well, we will be watching that this this episode posts on Thursday, but uh, whatever the latest news we have on this, we'll be linking that in our show notes as always. So thanks, Avery, for getting us up to date on this. Next week, we'll be taking a look at a notable election in Charleston County. Democrat Kristen Graziano's win against longtime incumbent Al Cannon for Charleston County Sheriff. If you have questions or comments about the election outcomes in South Carolina, we'd like to hear from you. Send us a message at understandsc at postandcourier.com. And don't forget, we have relaunched our weekly newsletter for this podcast, and we will again leave the link to sign up for that in our show notes. It's free, and you'll be the first to know when new episodes are posted. And remember, if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for this show, you can also find us on Twitter at understandsc. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>